Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Roger Angel has written for The New Yorker for over seven decades, and some of his most memorable essays have been about baseball. He never played baseball professionally, but like a lot of kids, he grew up fantasizing about one day being part of what pros affectionately call the show. He was actually still thinking about it in his 30s. And I had a dream that I walked out the door of our little house in the country and walked down there's a little tiny stream and a footbridge, and in the tangle of greens across the way, there was a gravestone, and I, I pushed it aside, and on it was my birth date, 1920, and then the, the present year, which might have been 1953, let's say. And the therapist said, what does that remind you of? And I said, it reminds me of those gravestones, those, those marker stones for bygone players out in the center of Yankee Stadium. And then it came to me. It was the end of my dreams of being a major league ball player. <laughs> I had died. My, my baseball playing years were over. I never played baseball, but they were over. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Roger Angel about his writing and his new book, This Old Man. He'll talk about baseball, not about scores and batting averages, but about the humanity of the people who play the game. Joe Torrey, a great favorite of mine, um, was one of his last statements. He was, the Yankees were pushing him out. And he said, I'm talking about his players, and he said, this is not machinery out there. It's not, it's blood that runs through their veins. A wonderful thing. But first, I'll talk with the actor Aya Cash. She recently wrapped up her second season starring on the TV comedy You're the Worst. It's her first starring role on TV, and it did come easy. Get a lot of no's before you get a yes. This is not healthy for me. Because I'm so sensitive and because I still get so affected by the rejection, I'm just not good at it. And it's part of my job to be good at it. I mean, that's part of what being an actor is. We'll talk about rejection and also about why her character on TV is sort of loathsome, but also really great. And I'll tell you about the wonderful reversal at play in the new Rocky movie, Creed. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I heard that You're the Worst got pitched as Mad About You for a New Generation. There are a few differences. You're the Worst, which just finished its second season on FXX, is full of crazy sex. Uh, The lead characters are total narcissistic jerks. There is a lot of super L.A.-specific cultural stuff. There's clinical depression handled with kind of actual sensitivity. But I can still see the similarities. I mean, You're the Worst is really a romantic comedy, and at its heart, it's kind of a sweet one. My guest, Aya Cash, is the star of the show. She plays Gretchen. She's a messy music publicist who hooks up with a guy named Jimmy, who she met at a friend or maybe frenemy's wedding. They bond there by being awful. He insults the bride. She steals a wedding present. Here's a scene from the first episode. They end up sleeping together the night of the wedding. When Gretchen leaves, she steals Jimmy's car. Later on, he calls her, and they realize there might be a match. Hello? What are you doing? Nothing, just reading. 
Hey, you won't believe this. Someone stole my car. Oh, God, that's awful. Yeah, I have to file a police report in the morning. I may have borrowed it. I know. Oh. Well, sorry. I told you I'm the worst. Actually, no, you said that I was the worst, and I was lucky to get you. Yeah, about that. No, don't apologize. It was a great speech. It was funny and true and mean. My favorite kind. I set my school on fire to get out of a math test. <laughs> that was genius. You're the Worst is a breakout role for Cash, who's also been on The Good Wife, The Newsroom, and Modern Family, and in films like The Wolf of Wall Street and Sleepwalk With Me, along with tons of theater work. Uh, also, we went to high school together. Hi, Aya. Nice to have you on the show. Hi, Jesse. As I just said, we went to high school together in San Francisco at uh, School of the Arts and uh, knew each other and were friendly, although maybe mm-hmm. friends is a stretch, but we're friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that as I get further away from my school days, it, when I see someone that I knew in school and talk to them about their idea of who they were or who I was, it's often so completely different from my view of the world that mm-hmm. I feel like... I I must have had no clue about anything at the time. Or maybe now I don't have any clue. Or maybe I changed it in between. I'm not sure exactly. But um, uh, what about you in high school do you think I wouldn't have perceived from the outside? Oh, gosh. I don't I mean, yeah, our sense of ourself is probably very disconnected from what is actually being put out there. Um so I'm not sh- – yeah, I don't actually have a good sense of what you would have thought of me. What was going on with you in high school? Um, I mean, I was very, very uh, much interested in trying to be different and weird and unique in a way that is very not unique. And it's kind of a Sisyphean task at a public arts high school in San Francisco. Completely. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was very, uh, I think I was perceived as very outgoing and loud, slightly obnoxious. Um, I said slightly because I'm trying to be nice to myself. I was pretty obnoxious, and um, I sang in the hallways. I would dance. I wore a Superman cape to school and vintage silk pajamas and a <laughs> necklace of a toothbrush around my neck because that was somehow, no, I didn't use the toothbrush. It was just somehow like, I thought, nobody has that necklace. <laughs> I just remembered that. That's true. That is a true story. I, I shaved my head that. a couple times. Um, yeah, I was just very much trying to be unique, I think, and it often backfired. I wasn't – I didn't feel very liked in high school. I didn't feel like people were like, yeah, that girl. Like, I want to know her. They were like, shut up. <laughs> um, so uh, I I remember, you know, run-ins with sort of – the older students where I just would go home and feel like a terrible human, but it didn't, it didn't shut me up. Did you think that being an actor was a real thing that you could really do? Like at what point did that come into focus for you? Yeah. You know, my parents are both artists, so there was no get a real job in my family, which is very lucky. I've discovered as I've moved further out into the world and away from San Francisco where a lot of people I knew were in that same boat. Um, 
So I did. I thought it was a valid job. Now, the difference between um, the kind of success that society values versus, (laughs) like, being an actor is different. So I never... I I didn't actually expect to make a lot of money at it, and neither did... I mean, my mom is a poet and has made a little money over the years, but has never, you know, she's she still works very, very hard to pay her bills. Um, and that's the kind of artist, actor I thought I would be. And I thought maybe I'd go be a regional theater company member somewhere was the ideal. Were you prepared to audition for things for the rest of your life? Because I think, you know, I wasn't and am not a very particularly good actor, but I think that the thing that after doing four years of theater uh, convinced me not to pursue it further was auditioning for things. Like, it terrified me so much. I was like, I don't want this to be my life. Well, you're probably a healthier human than I am. I mean, I don't enjoy (laughs) it in any way, shape, or form. There's no part of me that, you know, some people are like, I just love auditioning because it gives me the opportunity to act. And I was like, well, I really feel the opposite of that, which is that you go into auditions and you have to do something to get their attention that is so antithetical to what you're supposed to be doing in a scene. And you're like taking all the attention in that moment so you can get the job. And then you're like, but don't worry, I won't do that on set because you actually shouldn't do that on set. So it doesn't I don't know of a better way to get jobs, but it doesn't feel like it's the best I feel like we right now could come up with a better way, <laughs> or you, like you a world's strongest man competition, something, maybe? or yeah, S- something involving throwing giant truck tires. Yeah, well, and the other problem is when you get offers, which once in a while I get an offer to do something now, and then I'm immediately like, who the heck do they think I am? Like I have no idea what they're expecting me to do. So in some ways, it's nice at least if you audition, you know that you're doing something that they're interested in as opposed to I I got an offer to do something once and I showed up to set and immediately they looked at me and I'd cut my hair and it was it used to be blonde and now it's um, red I think it might have been brown at that point but they didn't realize that and like they looked me up and down and it was just they were I mean I had like bigger and bigger hair every time I went into the makeup trailer they were like more 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 she doesn't look like we want her to look like and then I got to set and they were like could you just lower your voice an octave and I was like I don't know why you hired me (laughs) like what's the what was the thing so I guess yay auditions but no rejection sucks it's bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne I'm talking to Aya Cash she's one of the stars of the FXX comedy You're the Worst which was just renewed for a third season. You uh, live in New York and have done as much or more stage acting as you have done film and television work. Um, Is it true that uh, when you went to audition for and ended up getting the part in You're the Worst, you were at a place where you were like in a theater production and had decided that at the end of that, uh, that was the end of your acting career? Yeah. I do it like my agent's joke. It's like, oh, is it that time of year? Because (laughs) every year I'm like, maybe this is not healthy for me because I'm so sensitive and because I still get so affected by the rejection. I'm just not good at it. And it's part of my job to be good at it. I mean, that's that's part of what being an actor is, is not internalizing and not taking that stuff personally. And I'm just so crappy at it. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't working and I wasn't feeling happy. 
And I was just like, I think I'm done. I was doing a little play with some friends that I loved. I had done it before um, in the West Village. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this play, and then I'm going to think about, like, what else I want to be doing with my life. And right when I said that to my agent, I was like, don't call me. I'll call you. He called, and I picked up, and he was like, hey, they're doing this new sitcom. Do you want to recur on it because you have an offer? And I was like, I am back. Things are great. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's the problem. I get so swayed by those things. So then I was back in, and then I ended up. After that, I was in L.A. one day a week doing that sitcom while I was doing the play. And I was around to audition for You're the Worst. But then they didn't cast me. And then the antique store idea of that that was my dream is I would open an antique store uh, came back because they didn't cast me in You're the Worst on the first round. And Stephen really fought for me and retested me. And in the retest... Stephen, the creator of the show. Yeah, the creator of the show. Um in the retest, we tested in the Orange is New Black offices, and we were, like, in some, you know, office with, like, a little camcorder that he set up. And we walked out afterwards, and I was like, thanks, man. Like, this was great, but, like, you have no control as a creator. Like, the network doesn't want me. Like, good luck with your show. I'm really excited about this antique store idea. <laughs> and and then I got it that night. Had you been in that position before? Yeah. I had been in a position where a showrunner was like, you're the girl. And the network was like, you're not the girl. And it was like, bye. And I have never seen them again. That must have been awful. Yeah. But I get, I mean, it's all relative. I get very, like, yes, we should all feel our feelings. And, like, it's hard. And, you know, I mean, I, I feel like it's so hard to talk about because in the grand scheme of things, it's like, it's no, it's not that big of a deal. Sure. I mean, you should certainly <laughs> be in Doctors Without Borders right yeah, now and not, exactly. not doing make-em-ups on yeah. uh, and if I bl- extended cable. but Exactly. If I blow an audition, it's not like, oops, the scalpel slipped. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, relative. But, yeah, it sucks. I mean, one of the things is that and, – and I imagine it was one of the things that you were thinking about as you were trying to decide whether to continue to be an actor mm-hmm. um, was that you had entered into your 30s and you had worked extensively as an actor but had never had a film or television part that you could really like hang your hat on and say like – oh, this is the kind of thing that I do. People who are looking for a thing like this, come get this Mm -hmm. because you know that I was this thing in that thing that you've heard of. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how the business... You just distilled the business down to one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I did that thing. Come get it. (laughs) But often that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get a part like the part that you just described that um, the creator of You're the Worst had to fight for you to get because... um, you know, the network says, sure, she did a great job, mm-hmm. but she's not a person we know from another thing. Yeah, and um, we're all unknowns. I mean, my the entire show is is people who you don't know, who you're not like, oh, that one. You know, I oh, I loved her on this. Um, and part of that is because Stephen auditions everyone. He won't he won't make offers. Um, he basically just was like, everyone has to come read. Uh, which I think evens the playing field a little bit and because a lot of those fancy people won't read. They won't audition for you. So even if he was interested in an actor, if they wouldn't audition, they didn't get the part. 
And so we got those opportunities. Let's listen to another scene from You're the Worst. And my guest is Aya Cash, who stars on the show as Gretchen. Um, it's a romantic comedy, and this is a, a major moment in uh, Jimmy, the male lead, and, and Gretchen's relationship, and, and also in our understanding of Gretchen from the second season, which, which just concluded. So in this episode, after Jimmy finds Gretchen trying, uh, slipping out to cry in her car, and uh, Gretchen has had a kind of a meltdown where she insults a bunch of her friends, and uh, we sort of understand that something is wrong. And um, in the scene, Gretchen decides to kind of share some of herself with Jimmy, who at this point she's like living with and stuff. Um, uh, and it's and it's part of herself that she's been keeping under wraps. What's going on with you? Okay, so. Here's an interesting thing that you don't know about me. I am clinically depressed. <laughs> it's been going on my whole life, so I'm actually really good at handling it. Uh, it strikes me whenever, and I have no idea why, but it's fine. I'm sorry I never told you. It slipped my mind. And who knows? With the right attitude, this could be a really fun adventure for everyone. So the only thing I need from you is to not make a big deal of it and be okay with how I am and the fact that you can't fix me. Can't I, though? I've got that mouse. (laughs) (laughs) These two lead characters of Jimmy and Gretchen uh, are both kind of narcissistic jerks Mm -hmm. to some extent. Um... To what extent do you like them as a person, as, as Aya Cash? I mean, you know, uh, I I like almost everyone. I'm actually, I, I feel like uh, I really, um, I their flaws are things that obviously we find entertaining. So that's one thing. But um, I like the confidence of a I really do. Like, I'm so impressed with people who who are there's there's a certain confidence in it, and and I I don't have that thing, um, and I'm sort of impressed by it. Even a, it's a an attraction and repulsion to it. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be a jerk in life, but I do like the sort of ownership of self, and then like I am the most important person in the room. Um, even, it's not necessarily a conscious thing with them. I don't think they're thinking that, but I think they take over every room and do whatever they want. And um, so I don't mind it. Uh, I Somebody once asked me, would I be friends with Gretchen? And I was like, well, Gretchen wouldn't be friends with me, but, but yeah, I would try. I'd be like, hey, you want to hang out? Some, yeah, sure, we can do some shots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's much... In in many ways, she's she's very cool in a way that I am not, and I sort of think that's fun. So uh, I knew you were acting professionally. I'd seen you in a movie, and maybe seen your name in a theater review in New York or something like that. I was like, oh, that's that's great. And then I heard that you had gotten a part in You're the Worst, and I hadn't seen it when it first came on. And I was talking to a friend of mine, Oliver Wang, who's one of the hosts of the sister show of this show, Pop Rocket, and he's a big fan of the show. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, this was maybe a month into the first season of You're the Worst. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, you haven't seen it? You know, I said, no, but my, my friend from high school is in it. And he said, uh, yeah, so you're going to watch the pilot? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm actually, I'm actually going to watch the pilot tonight. And he says, yeah, that's going to be pretty crazy for you. And I was like, why is that? And he's like, it's really dirty. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I watched the pilot. And there's no nudity on the show, uh, at least that I, I can think of. Uh, but outside of the fact that there's no nudity, it's about as intensely graphically sexual as it could possibly be. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder whether that was something that you had done before and how you felt about doing it. Yeah, no, I had never done it before. I felt terrible about doing it, but I liked the show so much. I was like, fine. I mean, as a as a girl in this business, as a woman in this business, you are constantly act, asked to take your clothes off. There are so many times when I get um, an audition and it says nudity required and I don't go on that audition. I just don't want to do it. Um, I don't have a problem with people doing it. And I think there are people, you know, people are like, oh, Lena Dunham's naked all the time. I think... Thank God she's naked all the time because it's so well done in that show and it has meaning and it and it's about who that character is and it fits. So I'm not anti-nudity, but it's just never been my thing. And um, I was very concerned. And then I did it and it was fine. Like it was just fine. It's just part of the job and everyone's really respectful and it's not sexy. And Chris and I are both married, which helps. Like there was no question of like, oh, should we continue this outside? It was like, no, put your hand there. and like, <laughs> Should we continue this sexual yeah. simulation yes. outside? <laughs> like, touching but not touching. And I mean, it's stupid. I mean, Chris and I are so comfortable with each other now when we were lying on the, there's like us lying naked on the sidewalk in front of the house once and like the entire time I'm like cover my crack cover my crack <laughs> like just put your hand over my crack um, so yeah everything normalizes right hedonic adaptation <laughs> it's fine but I mean you said sure you, the two of you have been working together for two years now yeah. uh, I watched those intense sex scenes in, in the pilot, pilot and yeah. one of the things that I thought was oh my god this pilot, they can have – I mean, maybe they got some extra time because it's a pilot, but they can't have been shooting for more than, you know, 10 or 12 days. Oh, you know? less. Yeah, less. And so even if they put the sex at the end, these are two people who basically had been friends for a week. Yeah. But on the other hand, now it's almost more awkward. Like if we – and we haven't had to do sort of graphic sex scenes at, at all because we're in a relationship. But – um it does like it would be more awkward. Like I know his wife, and I know his kid, and he knows my husband, and like we're such good friends. Like it'd probably be even weirder. I feel like now, like you can sort of just compartmentalize in a different way when you don't know someone. Do you feel like uh, you are free, having had this show be picked up for a third season, of the idea that maybe you should? quit show business and open an antique store? Nope. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because you so want to have your own antique store or because? No, it's because it's still hard to get jobs because it's just the reality of it. I mean, in some ways it's comforting, you know, I, you see some people at auditions and you're like, that person is auditioning? Like, I grew up watching that person and they are it to me. And you just still have to work your butt off to get jobs. I'm still getting rejected every day. I mean, it's just – it is what it is and I'm still not good at it. However, I now 
make a living at what I do. I mean, I was a waitress for five years, and like the moment I was not a waitress anymore is kind of a miracle. Like there are there are definitely um, steps forward, but it's not like you ever get to a place where you can just relax and let the offers roll in unless you're Jennifer Lawrence. And I don't know if the trade-off of like having to deal with what Jennifer Lawrence deals with is actually worth it. And I don't need to be, you know, like crazy rich. Like I can just be rich, rich, you know, like I, don't need to, <laughs> I just mean like I, I don't I don't have like huge ambitions to get to a kind of place that would allow me to not be rejected in that way anymore. Um, and I'm sure even Jennifer Lawrence gets rejected. But I'm like, I don't I also think that then the trade off is something that I'm not willing to give up either if you can even get there. Well, I, I'm so grateful you, you could uh, uh, come in and be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. You too. Aya Cash is uh, the uh, talented, funny <laughs> star of FXX's You're the Worst, which just finished its second season and is coming back on the network for a third soon. After a break, I'll talk to Roger Angel about the emotional impact of being witness to a baseball player's entire career. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bulletproof Coffee, working to turn your morning coffee into a favorite breakfast treat. You don't need a fancy coffee maker, just a unique recipe. Imagine a cross between a latte and a breakfast smoothie designed to keep you full and energized for hours. Visit Bulletproof.com and you'll get $10 off your first order when you enter the coupon code NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Hey, if you're a musician or you know someone who is, listen up. NPR Music is giving undiscovered artists the chance to play a tiny desk concert here in D.C. Any style of music goes, just send us a video of you playing an original song at a desk to enter. Yes, you heard right. At a desk. Enter by February 2nd at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The other day, I was home in San Francisco, where I grew up, and, and I wandered into this bookstore called Forest Books. It used to be on 16th Street, a few blocks from my mom's apartment, where I grew up. The owner was there at the counter. I recognized him, and I started to talk to him. When I was a kid, he used to save books for me, baseball books specifically. I was completely obsessed with baseball. He'd put them in the window, and then he'd sell them to me at a discount. So did the guy who ran Adobe Books up the street. I was probably reading a baseball book or two a week. Sometimes they just loaned them to me until I could get through them and then I would bring them back. And that was how I first came to Roger Angel. There are a lot of good books about baseball, but none are better than Angel's. His writing is clear and beautiful. He's not a sports writer. He doesn't travel with the team or file a column every day. Instead, he writes like a fan who's come to visit, and no one has ever matched his ability to describe how it feels to love watching a baseball game. Angel's been writing for The New Yorker for more than 50 years. He was born into it, in a way. His mother was the fiction editor there. His stepfather was the writer E.B. White, a contributor to the magazine. His dad was no slouch either, by the way, an attorney who ended up chairing the ACLU. Eventually, Angel took over his mother's office in the fiction department at The New Yorker, <laughs> and he still serves as senior fiction editor. His side career, writing about baseball for the magazine from time to time, got him the J.G. Taylor Spink Award from the Baseball Writers Association of America. If that doesn't sound familiar, I will summarize it. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, which isn't bad for a hobbyist. 
His new book is called This Old Man, Roger Angel, All in Pieces. It's a compilation of his work, mostly for The New Yorker. It includes a frankly and lovely title piece about aging that sort of went viral last year. It was an apt subject. Angel's old enough to remember Babe Ruth in his prime. And uh, from the evidence in the book, Angel is still in his prime himself. Welcome to Bullseye, uh, Mr. Angel. It's what a, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Jesse. Glad to be here. So you have a really nice little piece in here about just memories of seeing different people on the street in New York. Yeah. And one of the people is Babe Ruth. Yeah. What, what was it like <laughs> to see Babe Ruth well, on I the saw, street? I, I used to see the Babe playing. I saw him. I, 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 grew, I was born in 1920, and I started watching him when I was about nine years old. And I saw him get older and fatter, and but still extraordinary. And I would... I can remember coming into Yankee Stadium in that blaze of green when he came up above field level, and you'd look around and you'd see Lou Gehrig and Frank Rossetti and Babe Ruth out in right field with those little, what I once called debutante ankles, those little tiny ankles that he had. Uh, and then when he retired, once or twice, I mean, New York was much smaller back then, and once or twice I saw him go by, I saw him across the street, mostly wearing a camel's hair coat and a cap. And people would say, "Oh, hi, babe," and they would wave. Uh, you would you would run into people all over town. In in the book, there's a moment I describe when my last son, my young baby son, John Henry, had gotten to be about five or six years old, and his much older half sister, uh, Callie, was taking him out on his first solo bike. I mean, this is not a tricycle, an actual bike. So they're wavering down 90th Street toward Park Avenue, and at the end of the block, this old lady appears, all dressed all in dark clothes, and she sees this kid coming, just barely under control, coming toward her on a bike, and she dodges, and then she grabs the handlebars, and then as Callie runs up, she says, dangerous, aren't they? Greta Garbo. <laughs> Only in New York. <laughs> um you know, we, you were you were watching. Uh, you saw Babe Ruth and and the great Yankee teams of the nineteen twenties and thirties when you were probably at your most impressionable. I mean, I think like everything in my life. I, I was reading one of your pieces, and you offhandedly mentioned Will Clark's swing, and it was like such a rush of. Yeah. I grew up in San Francisco in the in the eighties and nineties, and like it was such a rush of nineteen eighty nine when I yeah. was eight years yeah. old that I like couldn't control it. I still have um, a, up, up on a bulletin board at home. I have a stop frame picture of uh, of, of his swing, of, of Clark's swing. It's such a beautiful thing. Yes. So, who did you love to watch play when you were a kid? Carl Hubble, who was pitching for the Giants across across the river, was my first pitching hero, and a, a, a fabulous left-hander who threw a screwball, and the pitch broke the wrong way. And absolutely dominating pitcher. Uh, he did this so often that late in his life he walked around and he walked with his hand twisted around so that his little finger was basically front instead of the thumb and his palm turned outward. And I was a kid pitcher. I was about 12 or 13 years old. I wanted to be a pitcher. And I could throw a screwball that broke about a tenth of an inch if you about every night. And uh, so I began walking around with my hand facing the wrong way. At home, and my mother says, "What's the matter with your hand?" And I told her. She said, "Don't do that." <laughs> so <laughs> there was an early hero, but I think the first hero that I really, aside from Ruth and the incumbent gods, the first hero that really caught my attention was Joe DiMaggio, 
because we heard about him before he arrived in the Pacific Coast League, burning up the, the league out there, and then arrived and was it was just astounding, of course. And you could see right away who he was in that wide and unmoving stance and playing center field in a way he never seemed to hurry. Now, I never saw him rush. I mean, he just glided and, and flew along and made these uh, amazing catches look easy. And the thing I became aware of with Joe is what every every young fan becomes aware of, and this is a significant thing in baseball. I mean, I never I never write about whether baseball is a national pastime or our American game. I've never gone there, but what fans do realize, even young ones, is the passing of a baseball life. You can see a wonderful young rookie arrive, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, just a kid. And you can see the first great years and then moving into their full power. And then within a decade or so, they become older players. And then you can see them beginning to slow down and strain. And then they leave. They die. So you see a life from birth to death in the space of 12 or 15, sometimes 20 years. Uh, it, it's, it's very moving. Everybody remembers the old age of Willie Mays here in New York when he'd come to play for the Mets, and uh, he was not himself. He was just, I mean, there's another great hero of mine I saw arrive as a young player when I was older, and his last year he shouldn't have done. Because I remember there was a, a drive to center field, there was a play in center field, and his left fielder runs over, and Willie flipped him the ball to flip it back in, to, th- to throw the peg, because his arm was gone. So... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of there's a shadowing that comes over the late, latter part of all athletic careers. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Roger Angel. He's been a contributor to The New Yorker for over 70 years, and he's currently one of its senior editors. His new book is called This Old Man. You grew up to be a writer, um, you know, with a mother who was a legendary editor and a stepfather who was, uh, uh, you know, a legendary writer and legendary stylist. Yeah. Um, but did you grow up to think that you were going to be uh, – did you ever think, oh, I, I could be a sports writer or uh, I could be a novelist or I could be something, something, something? Or did you always think, like, I'm going to be a book editor or uh, – you know, a magazine editor or one of these sort of jobs I, that just, you're... Jesse, I think it was both because my my parents were separated. And I lived with my father, which is not a good arrangement <clears throat> for anybody concerned. My sister and I were, lived with our father and saw our mother on weekends and vacations. And both our parents loved us and cared for us. But when I was with my mother and stepfather in New York and then in their place in Maine later on, the New Yorker was all around. It was in their conversation constantly. They talked about Harold Ross, the editor. He was like another member of the dinner table. Ross this was always there. Ross the rest of this, Ross that. And my mother would be surrounded with galleys and brown pencils and eraser rubbings and doing going down columns of editing. And my stepfather was, was a writer, uh, very light things mostly, but he wrote the first page of The New Yorker every week, the comment page, which was a an editorial in those days a fairly light in nature, but as the 30s went along into the 40s, he had to write about more serious things. The world had changed. And I used to watch him on Tuesday mornings up in Maine. He would shut the door of his study, and there'd be the thrash of a typewriter in there now and then, but the long, long pauses in between. And he'd come out and lunch at lunch and eat his lunch in silence and look, look very grave and 
writing is writing is really hard. I began to conclude, which it is. And then he would fight, he would mail it off in the afternoon mail and say it wasn't good enough. And then the copy would arrive, the rough copy of the New Yorker would turn up a week later, and you'd read this stuff, which was so light and flowing and easy and a pleasure to read a sense. You thought it took him about four minutes to write the whole thing. And I began to see what writing was like and what the, the pleasure of it, but also how hard it is. It's, writing is hard for almost everybody. And But I also saw what my mother was. And as I grew up, I wanted to be a writer. I was a smart kid. I wrote well as a kid. I was always doing things in school magazines and editor of the school paper. Um, I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway, like everybody else in my generation, only I wasn't. And after the war, I had a job writing on a GI magazine, editing and writing on a GI magazine in the Pacific. And after the war and during the war, actually, I wrote a bunch of short stories, and they, they were okay. They, some of them got into the, into the best American short stories. But I realized that there wasn't enough in me to make me into a full-time writer, <clears throat> a novelist or a short story writer. I didn't have enough confidence. And I was married, I was going to have a young family, and I also wanted to be an editor. So I became an editor, and by great good luck, I went first with Holiday, Holiday, Holiday Magazine for 10 years, which I loved. In both places, I could be an editor and a writer. And at the New Yorker, if I, whatever I wanted to write, there was always time enough, and they wanted the writing too. So I did both, and I went on doing that. And it was it was uh, just a natural thing for me, and uh, it worked out pretty well. I had a good time with it. When you started writing about baseball in your 40s, um, you were at the point in your life uh, where baseball players are at the you know you were in the you were in sort of the fat middle of your professional life and the players that you were covering um you know were staring at the age that you were and thinking about the end of their professional lives and i wonder uh i i wonder what that was like for you to just to come to terms with that i mean there's this moment in any sports fan's life where you realize that all the players that the players aren't older than you anymore um, and I'm approaching the point in my life, you know, I've got about five years before they all start being younger than me. <laughs> well, when we were all fans at one point, I remember a year, well, I was in my, in my thirties and I was seeing a therapist one, once in a while. And I had a dream that I walked out the door of our little house in the country and walked down this little tiny stream and a footbridge and in the tangle of greens across the way there was a gravestone and I, I pushed it aside and on it was was my birthday 1920 and then the, the present year which might have been 1953 let's say and I thought what is this and the therapist said what does that remind you of and I said it reminds me of those gravestones those, those marker stones for bygone players out in the center of Yankee Stadium and then it came to me it was the end of my dreams of being a major league ball player. <laughs> I had died. My my baseball playing years were over. I never played baseball, but they were over. <laughs> yeah, like there is a not insignificant part of me that thinks, look, if I dump all this radio and podcasting baloney and just focus on the knuckleball, 
I got a shot. Like it's a slim shot, but I, the knuckleball could still be my ticket. But yeah. I think about th- yeah. three years from now, I'm going to be out of luck even on the knuckleball front. Well, I think it was a lot easier, at least when I was younger, to have that kind of a dream because ball players were not all that big. They were they were a little bit bigger. You got to the you got to Yankee Stadium or the Polo Grounds, and you if you had a decent seat, you could see these guys were just about the same age as people you knew, like your uncle. If you had a big, strong, powerful uncle, they weren't six feet seven. They were maybe six feet and a little more muscular. They were like us. They were like regular guys. And so it was easy to think with a little luck that could have been me, which is what every young man used to think, with a little luck that could have been me. Uh, But you know, you can't think that anymore. And I don't think it's the money or the celebrity of players that does that. It's their size. Modern athletes are enormous. They are nothing like us. Even the ordinary ones, these don't seem outsiders. If you stood next to Derek Jeter... He's a huge guy, a big guy, much bigger than you, much bigger. If you stand next to Arod, you, you'd think, this is a different species. They're not like us, and they aren't. They are, they are, they're outsized in their skill. They're, they're much more skillful than the old, old players, and uh, there's just no comparison. So I don't think that dream, that little, with a little luck, it could, could be me. I don't think that kids think that anymore. Maybe they do. Did you feel like a real sports writer when you started writing about sports? When I started, Jesse, I was, I was, you know, I was a, in my 40s a magazine editor, and I was afraid to go into the clubhouse because I was just a fan. I was a good fan, but I didn't know what these guys, and I didn't know what, what to ask them. Or, so I sat in the stands. This is in 1963, and... Uh, it was a good year to sit in the stands because that was the first year the Mets had just arrived in New York and they were playing at the Polo Grounds, one of the worst teams of all time. And I sat in the stands and watched them and wrote about them and wrote from the point of view of me sitting in the stands and watching what was going on and what was going on around me, which is this fan suddenly adopting. It's New York fans who were used to winning and used to the Yankees, the Imperial Yankees across the river, suddenly getting aboard the Mets. Let's go Mets, let's go Mets, a cry for a losing team. It was a great fan story, and I was there, so it helped me a lot. But uh, After a while, for a couple of years, I got my nerve up, and I went into the clubhouse, and I was I got a lot of help from the, the beat writers and columnists who were there, who got gotten to know them, and they always helped me out. They filled me in and made me, made me feel as if I was almost a pro myself. And uh, I got to be more at home in the press box and enjoyed that. And uh, But there was a lot of help along the line. And by then I had learned what I, what I needed most of all was to find some great talkers, baseball players or managers who, who could talk and would fill up paragraphs with their, their, their stuff. And I, I, as I say in the book, I collected them the way a millionaire billionaires collect great paintings, the great talkers, the three fifty talkers. <laughs> Who were your favorite talkers? Uh let's see. Roger Craig, the inventor of the split finger fastball, an old Dodger pitcher, uh, who pitched for the Dodger yeah. And the manager of the, and and then and the, the manager, manager of the, the aforementioned nineteen eighty nine San Francisco Giants. Yeah, I'll say so important I'll say. To yeah, me. I know, I know. 
uh, Joe Torrey, obviously, uh, the great catcher and, and uh, hitter Ted Simmons uh, come to mind. Jim Fry, who once was former manager of the Royals. Uh, Ted Williams, a great talker. All these guys, I hung around and and ran my tape and took a million notes and put the stuff down in paragraphs. I remember going out once to start spring training uh, in Scottsdale and to see the Giants, and Roger Craig was out in left field. And I walk out there, and he's talking to a friend of mine, a writer named David Bush, and we shake hands, and David uh, says to Roger Craig, he said, you know, Roger, meaning me, has a new book out. Did you know that? And Craig looks at me, and he says, no, said, have, he said, have you read it? And he said, read it? He said, hell, I wrote half of it. <laughs> <laughs> and another, the other thing is, if you're doing this, you really want to, you find people who will take you in a little bit, even though you haven't been a pro. Some pro players will not really talk because you haven't played the game. But there is some kind of a barrier or a step over or a good guy who says, yeah, he's one of us. And I didn't want to be one of us as pals, but I wanted them to talk. And I remember trying to get Ted Simmons to talk to me. A very, very smart guy and a terrific hitter and a great catcher. He became a better catcher as he went along. And he was also, strangely enough, he played for the Cardinals. He was a collector of American furniture and a notable collector of American furniture. So one day I'm sitting with him maybe in spring training and he's not giving me anything. We won't talk. And I changed the subject to American furniture. And Simba, as they call him, Ted, looked at me and he said, stop right there. He said, I said, Roger, I don't know if you know anything about American furniture or not. And if you did, maybe we might have an interesting conversation. But I don't know that. And then there's a pause. And then he said, and besides, my insurance agent has told me not to talk about my collection of American furniture anymore. <laughs> he was afraid somebody would come and swipe some of the furniture, which did go into museums. Anyway, this went on and on. And then one day, a couple of years later, out in Sun City, Arizona, he was a little bit older but still playing. And he came out of a game early. And I went out to right field the lockers, and he and I are sitting in the locker room together. Nobody else is there, and I'm still waiting in my empty notebook, and I'm thinking of something to say, and I said, Ted, you're a switch hitter. You throw right, but you're a much better left-handed hitter than a right-handed hitter. Why is that? And he looked at me, and he said, why do you think it is, Roger? And I said, thrashing around, I said, well, it occurs to me that as a catcher, you have to throw the ball back to the pitcher over and over and over again. So maybe your right hand is too strong when you right bat. Maybe your top hand is too strong when you bat right-handed. And he looked at me and he said, I didn't think you'd have noticed that. And then he was mine. Then From then on, we were buddies. He would talk about anything. I couldn't shut him up. I'd stepped over that little barrier. I'd noticed something that was faintly professional. I'll finish my conversation with Roger Angel after a break. He'll explain why he thinks the sport of baseball is so similar to the art of writing. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO Now, the new way to stream all of HBO, every episode of every season of HBO series, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service. And no TV package is required. Download the HBO Now app to your favorite device to start your 30-day free trial instantly. 
Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Hey, if you're a musician or you know someone who is, listen up. NPR Music is giving undiscovered artists the chance to play a tiny desk concert here in D.C. Any style of music goes, just send us a video of you playing an original song at a desk to enter. Yes, you heard right. At a desk. Enter by February 2nd at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is writer, sports journalist, and New Yorker contributor and editor Roger Angel. He's the author of This Old Man. Well, one of the great pieces that you wrote was a profile of Steve Blass, a baseball pitcher who had been truly great and essentially lost the ability to do it. Um, Couldn't throw the ball over the plate. Yeah. Well— Steve Blass had some some kind of a psychic breakdown. This has happened just after Roberto Clemente, the great star. The Pirates uh, had been in their second World Series. Parson Orioles played in in seventy three and seventy nine, I believe, and played a great World two great World Series. Um, Roberto Clemente had been killed in a plane crash. By far, the played as the greatest player on the Pirates. And Steve Blass had been a starting pitcher, but not a great, great pitcher. And suddenly in uh, the World Series, I think it was the 79 World Series, I'm, I'm blanking out a little bit, uh, suddenly pitched above his level and was winning and winning. And the next year he came and he could not throw strikes anymore. It was He was all over the place. And over a period of the next three or four years, um, he lost and lost and lost and, and suddenly was... Couldn't couldn't get the ball anywhere near the plate, and dropped out of the major leagues and had tried a hundred different ways to come back and couldn't do it. And I went to see him just as this was ending. And he, I spent four or five days with him and his family in Pittsburgh, and a very engaging, sweet man discussing this mysterious uh, psychic uh, uh, alteration, which had ruined him. Uh, I was very privileged. I was very privileged. Um, if you get the confidence of a player, not everyone, but if you get the confidence that they will sometimes turn out they want to, they want to tell you something, they want to tell you. Um, the wife of a young semi-pro pitcher that I spent a month with or so during the baseball strike in 1981, uh, her name was Linda Kittle, and we and her husband, uh, not yet her husband, but her pitcher, consort, later husband, Ron Goble, spent a week together at the lowest level of, of uh, semi-pro ball. And at the end of this time, she said, we have given you our lives. And this is the responsibility of a writer. This happens again and again. If people start to talk to you about their lives, they are telling you everything that's going on with them. So this happens with writers, and you have to take it very seriously. Uh, people want to give you their lives, and you you can't just make a story out of a life. You have to somehow justify what you've done and make and put enough in there so that there are glimpses of a life. You can't do more than that. But it's a great privilege, and it's scary. Did you feel weird about the fact that you were writing about sports, a subject that is so important to so many people, but for so many other people, and I know this as a public radio host, like could not be less interesting, compelling, or capital I important. I know because these people will probably are probably composing a note to me right now 
about the fact that we're talking about baseball. Well, I ne- Jesse, I never cared about this. I mean, I don't, I don't go out and go into a party and expect I'm going to be talking baseball. Uh, if somebody comes along and wants to talk baseball, great. But I mean, I'm, I'm just a old guy. I can talk about almost anything or try to. Um, if if it's baseball fun, and people come up to me and say, "I'm sorry, I don't know anything about baseball," I said, "That's okay. Come on, <laughs> it's not compulsory." But um, also learn the opposite, which is meeting people I didn't know, just people at some dinner party or something who are competitive fans, and uh, they I would say something or rather, if pushed a little bit, I'd say something about the the Mets or the Yankees or or. Whatever, and they would say, "Oh, that's not true." <laughs> if you say so, I don't know, but it's so funny. But this is only the men. All this men they want to want to compete a little bit in their sports expertise. It's much harder to be a fan now. Uh, the distance of money and and the way the stands are built and uh, the the televised interview and the online stuff uh, they're they're not nearby. Uh, it's 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 too bad, but I I think that if we can still bridge this gap, it takes an effort. It takes an effort, and the wonderful thing that sustains you is the difficulty and the surprises of baseball. Nobody can predict what what's going to happen in baseball. Everybody asks me who's going to win this year. I say I have no idea, and they say who's going to win the playoffs? Who's going to win the World Series? I said I don't have any idea. And over and over again, stuff happens, and you you just, I mean, two years ago, the, the Giants and the Royals, who were both wildcard teams, play in the World Series. They play a terrific World Series. Absolutely fabulous. Nobody, no sports writer predicted this. Baseball is completely unpredictable, and it's... It looks boring. The same thing happens over and over again. Pop flies, strikeouts, base on balls, foul balls. And then... Almost regularly, almost every fifth or sixth game, you see something you've never seen before. Uh, absolutely astounding. It has something to do with the law of averages. But uh, no other sport does that. I, I, You know, baseball especially, but sports in general, is this series of stories on different scales. You know, this, the story of an at-bat, the story of a game, the story of a yeah. season, the yeah. story of a player's year and, and a player's career. Yeah, and yeah. You know, it sort of frames for people who follow sports our own lives to some extent. Lives is the point, yeah. I I wonder how how you see those things uh, differently as now a 95-year-old man uh, relative to when you were a kid or when you were a young man or when you were in middle age. Well, it's hard to remember what it was like when I was a kid, and I think it's hard to remember what it's like when I was a young man. It's it's a little difficult. My memory's okay, but things move on. But the thing about being involved with something like baseball is that it is played by human beings, and we tend to forget this. Athletes are so far away from us and so powerful and so rich that we do, we forget this. And Joe Torre, a great favorite of mine, uh, and it's one of his last statements. He was they were the Yankees were pushing him out, and he said, talking about his players, and he said, "This is not machinery out there. It's not, it's blood that runs through their veins. A wonderful thing." Uh, I remember a moment with uh, the 
pirate manager, Jim Leland. I was with the pirates somewhere, and he had just called in a pitcher and sent him down to the minors and said how hard that was. And I said, did you tell him you would see him again? He hoped he'd come back and he'd see him back up here and it would just be a matter of time. And he said, no, you can't do that. These are human beings. You can't. He's probably not going to make it back. He's probably not good enough to make it to this. You owe it to them not to do that. And not every manager does that. Many managers just say, oh, we'll see you again. You're going to be great and then goodbye. And Leland said, I don't do that. I try not to do that. Um, the great thing about Joe Torrey was he'd been a player and he never threw a player, never threw a player under the bus. I never heard him demean or dismiss a player of his. If there was a question about somebody who was who was slumping or couldn't strike anybody out anymore, he would say, "Oh, David is concerned about his slider, or so and so isn't happy with his at bats." And the insatiable writers' minds would shift for a minute to the player and not to the story. Uh, Torrey had played the National League, was a great catcher and, and all-star, and led the league in batting one year. But what he talked about with his players was the next year, after he won a batting crown, and when he batted 90 points less. His batting average went down by 90 points. And then he would bring up the year, the day, when I think playing against the Cardinals, playing against the Giants, he was the first National League player ever to bat into four double plays in one game. He always mentioned that, and the players loved him for it because he knew how hard this game was for them. And I remember Jim Fry once talking about how hard batting was for a 230 to 240 hitter. He said, every at-bat is crucial. Every at-bat for the 235 hitter is crucial. One more hit per week transforms him into a 290 hitter. One hit a week through the, or a 300 hitter. One hit per week will do that at the end of a season. And he talked about Hank Aaron and somebody, somebody once saying to Hank Aaron, well, it must be nice to come to the ballpark every day and know you're going to get two hits. And Hank looked at this guy and said, I don't ever think that. I don't ever think I'm going to get two hits when I come to the ballpark. And there was a pause, and he said, well, if I don't get two hits today, I'm going to get them tomorrow. <laughs> so it's different for the Hank Aarons. <laughs> My guest on Bullseye is the writer Roger Angel. His book is called This Old Man. It's a collection of decades of his writing for The New Yorker and other publications and includes the title piece, which is about what it's like to be older than 90 you spent most of your, or a, a huge chunk of your career as the fiction editor of The New Yorker. And I wonder of all the writers that you worked with, um, who you had the most fun working with and who you found the process of working with the most rewarding. I don't think there's a single one. The whole the whole process, if you get to know, I mean, I think it's a big misapprehension about uh, Editors, there's a feeling out there that, I mean, often shared by writers, inexperienced writers, that the editor is trying to ruin your great work. And some well-known writers still think this way. But my experience and the experience at the New Yorker editing fiction is that 
you are working again. You're working with the writer about something that is so difficult. You're, you're you are there with the manuscript or or galleys between you, and you're trying to clear up a sentence or a paragraph, uh, and you get hung up on this. I mean, John Updike. There are a lot of people I worked with over a period of years, and John Updike, V.S. Pritchett, the great uh, British short story writer, uh, Donald Barthamy. Um, about about 20 people that I edited for many years, and you would find yourself uh, trying to straighten out what had happened to this paragraph. Something happened mostly about the tone. Was it too was it too uh, brisk? Was it too tough? Was it too sentimental? Uh, what's wrong with this sentence? Updike was the perfect example that I wrote. Really finished, wonderful finished copy, but. Inevitably, in every story, there's a place where you point out something and they say, yeah, I think you're right. And then he would try to do the sentence or the group of sentences over again. And you would throw in your two cents worth. And then John would call up the next, he always wanted the last proof, but he would call up the from this place in Massachusetts. Uh, probably most of the time we do this by phone. And he'd call up and he would have rewritten two or three sentences and you would write them down, and they were better, and it solved the problem better than anything that either of you had been able to figure out the day before. I think a lot of readers tend to think that what they see on the page was always meant to be that way. That it was, it was, came like, like from some beautiful forge or something out of the writer's mind, and this perfect sentences what they're reading in the book. And writers know that's just the last proof. That's the last stuff you had to, you finally had to go to press and it's the best you can do for the moment uh, it's it's so interesting and uh, the collaboration with writers and, and editors is very intimate, it's very strange it's a very intimate uh, and moving friendship centered on the difficulty of writing Well, in the title piece of the book This Old Man you write kind of about you open with a series of paragraphs that's just about the ways that what 95 means to a person's body, basically. Yeah. And My arthritic fingers is the first thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I wonder, like, when you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, geez, look at these arthritic fingers and all these different things and, like, oh, you know, my back hurts. I don't – I'm used to I'm used to my fingers. That's, I'm not thinking about them anymore. <laughs> right. But, like, what are the things that uh, – excite you enough that uh, you're like, hey, let's get out there and, and face the day. And not only get out there and face the day, but like do things like what you do, which is to say you you still work pretty consistently. and uh, not, uh, not much. You know, I'm, se- I'm semi-retired. I'm just about retired and my eyes are getting worse. I'm not doing a whole lot of work. I hope to find, I've been doing this book and I'm going to find something else to do. But uh, yeah, but you, I'm, yeah, I'm lucky. I'm 95. Re- I'm 95 and I can still go to work, which is very, very... I'm extremely lucky. You were remarried recently, like what? what I'm are remarried, the... yeah. I mean, this is I have a wonderful wife, and we're, this has happened. And in the piece, I mean, it covers a lot of ground. And I say that one of the extraordinary things about being old is that the need for my wife died in in 2012. My wonderful wife of 48 years, Carol, and um, I thought everything was over, but um, we 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 go on, and and we take these terrible losses and somehow persist and life goes on inside us and we want to be connected and we want love and uh, intimacy and romance and and friendship like everybody else 
and it's a great story. It's, I mean, this is just we just recently in in our times have begun to realize that old people are sensual and and uh, romantic and uh, living uh, still happy to be here and doing the best they can. And this is good news for us all. Uh, and my my wife Peggy is is a wonderful thing that has happened to me. It's it's. Uh, it's just there's no accounting for it. It's so great, but uh, all all people are like this. Where this is how we are, and I think this is just the news is just getting out. Certainly to our children, it's a big shock to our children that, that we are we are the way we are. I quote a line from I read somewhere from Laurence Olivier. He said about old age. He said, "Inside we're all seventeen with red lips." <laughs> a great line. <laughs> Well, uh, Roger, I'm I'm so grateful for the book and, and so grateful that you uh, uh, took the time to come in and talk to me about it. Um, it. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Same here, Jesse. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it a lot. Roger Angel's new book is called This Old Man, Roger Angel, All in Pieces. And uh, Roger, sincerely, thank you. I mean, your work has touched my life as much as literally any other artist in the world and i mean that oh thank you wow thank utter you so sincerity. much like wow. for real changed my life so much. when i was a kid thanks and, jesse and wow still touches it now so thank you thank you every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me your host it's the outshot so you know rocky I love Rocky, but it's basically a movie about a race war. I mean, it's the story of this humble, working-class white guy who fights a flashy, mouthy black guy. Basically, it's white people's anxieties in the 70s in the form of a sports movie. And I mean, not just the anxieties from the 70s. These are, I mean... Read any critique of Kanye West and you'll get pretty much the same themes now. To be clear, I don't think Rocky was intended maliciously. It's just that the racial context is kind of hard to ignore, especially now. And it uh, gets in the way a little bit of what is honestly a really thrilling movie. But that same weird quality of Rocky is one of the things that's so exciting about Creed, the new sequel. If we leave aside the race stuff, I actually think the lesson of Rocky is pretty solid. One of the great things about sports movies is that you can have a battle at the end that's, like, meritocratic. And usually the lesson in a sports movie is that if you're virtuous, you will emerge from that battle as the winner. But Rocky's a little bit different. And I'm about to spoil Rocky, so if you haven't seen it and somehow you have not heard how it ends... Um, then, you know, turn off your radio and go watch it because it is a great movie. Um, But anyway, the lesson of Rocky is basically that working really hard at something that you care about is fundamentally good. Even if you yourself aren't remarkable in any way but your commitment, that it isn't about the outcome but about the process. And so the simplicity of sports, the way you can have these rules in that final battle, especially in boxing, the simplest of sports, is a great setup for that lesson. In Rocky, we see that even a schlub who loses, he loses in the end. 
wins because he puts his heart and all of his wholehearted effort into this thing that he loves. Rocky, as a film, basically asserts that normalcy, like working-class, anonymous, gray sweatsuit, working in a meat locker, normalcy, is honorable if it's applied with a full heart. It's honorable to train. Even if you're punching a side of beef or pulling logs through the snow, work is honorable, even if the system means that the folks who work don't always win. That's kind of great. Again, setting aside the race thing. But we can't really set aside the race thing. I mean, there's this other part, which is Rocky's white, even if he's broke and Italian, and he's fighting a black guy. And so that virtuous everyman story is built on this classic problem with the stories we tell about America, which is that the everyman is always a white guy, and white guys and black guys are always in this zero-sum struggle. But that big problem with Rocky, like I said, it's one of the big assets of the new sequel, Creed. The hero of Creed, his name is Adonis Creed, is a privileged black kid. Rocky teaches him. But it isn't a movie about an old white guy teaching a mouthy black guy to be humble slash whiter. Adonis is cocky, and he takes his lumps for it, but the movie isn't a deportment lesson. Adonis isn't just a rich kid learning to be tough. He's a tough, rich kid learning to find a place in the world. He's fighting, he's fighting for a secure self-definition, fighting to have a father, and basically fighting to be allowed to be himself and an American at the same time. One of the things that makes the first Rocky movie so great is that it gives all this time to just kind of plain on-the-streets life in Philadelphia. And in Creed, we get that same thing, but it includes people who are written out of the mainstream. So, for example, when the love interest teaches Adonis what a John is, and John, if you don't know, is Philadelphia slang for pretty much whatever. It basically means thing. Uh... That scene isn't just about Adonis being from out of town. It's about giving some honor to a regular folks in Philly thing, but a regular folks in Philly thing where the regular folks in question happen to be black. It puts black people at the center, not at the margin. It's just so rare that we get to see black people have everyday lives in movies. And Creed has that up and down in this big Hollywood movie, and that is something special. There's this corny scene in Creed where the kid, Adonis, is training. He's training for the big fight. It's a note that we know, of course, from the other Rocky movies, this training montage. But as Adonis is jogging through the streets of Philly, he's wearing Jordans, and he's surrounded by black kids on ATVs and dirt bikes, and they're doing wheelies and revving their engines... And they're basically saying, this is what we do. This is our thing. And you're one of us. And also, this work that you're doing here is for us. And it shows and proves that we're here and we count. And like I said, it's corny. I mean, all the Rocky movies are corny. But dang it if I didn't want to just jump up in my seat and pump my fist. And that's the truth. That's my outshot. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Abari and Exparello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Our senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, Dan. And thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to our friend Neil Rauch at NPR in New York. Thank you, Neil. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. This week, comedian Guy Branham and journalist Margaret Wappler talk about the best literature of 2015 and the books they're most looking forward to in the coming year. Pop Rocket. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. And here is a hot tip for you. Uh, If you're looking for a great place to talk about popular culture, Pop Rocket has a really amazing Facebook group where everyone is so smart and nice and thinks of the things that you've always wished uh, that people in a place to talk about pop culture would think of uh, before you even think of them. And it's just great. So, uh, you know, search for Pop Rocket on Facebook join that. It's awesome. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.